around the Via Stabiana toward the Triangle Forum in the market. The sun is shining and the air is warm. You're with your family and you're on your way to the bakery to buy some bread for your meal later. You find your way to the bakery and walk inside to greet the shop owner. Hello, and welcome to my bakery. How may I help you today? Hello, sir. I was wondering if you would be willing to give me a sample for my son. The bakery owner hands the boy a sample of fresh bread out of the oven. Mmm, Dad, we should buy a loaf for dinner later. Just then, the ground shakes and you hear a terrible explosion in the distance. Fear strikes all the people inside the bakery. The boy turns his head towards his dad and says, What is happening, Papa? Can't we go home? As the father turns to answer, a strange mist enters the dwelling. Now all the inhabitants fall to the ground and become part of history. All while the bread still bakes in the oven. The day is August 24th, 79 CE, and this is the story of the destruction of the city of Pompeii. You are listening to the premiere episode of Is History Watching? History for everyone, but our point of view. My name is Stephen. I will lead you now through the fanatical story of the destruction of Pompeii. But before we jump in, let's first introduce Is History Watching? This is a new venture that has been a couple of years in the making. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about the history in my mind. What do I mean? Let me elaborate. Every episode will consist of a historical topic I find interesting at the moment. It may be great man history or even a story of the everyday people surrounding a major event. There will be some fictional parts to the story and facts surrounding the topic that is being discussed. It will even feature a section set aside for another area of interest, small business. We will discuss an area of small business I find useful and entertaining right before the featured business that sponsored the episode is talked about. My background lies in small business. I have a master's degree in business administration, and I am a partner and owner of a family-owned retail and service business. So you may be asking, where does history come in? I'm a true lover of history. I enjoy reading, writing, collecting, and watching history unfold. My historical journey began with collecting history, from Civil War bullets to Roman coins to early books on the American Revolution. It led to developing and writing for my own history blog called Hey There, It's History, and even a crack at self-publishing and historical fiction called Time Responders. Then came my need, need to have a voice. Where better to have a voice than a podcast? My goal is to take the facts and tell a story. Some material, like the opening with fictional characters, has some depth in fact. The first episodes will stay in the world of Rome, starting with the destruction of Pompeii, then to the story of the famed Ninth Legion, and ending with the story of the Colosseum. Now let's jump back into the story of Pompeii. This is happening, I said to the kindly bakery owner. There is a cloud of dust hurling towards the city in the bakery. I can sense something like an invisible fort pulling the breath from our bodies. Maybe we should all lay down and rest until it passes. Well, I agree. I will sit and let the bread finish baking while we wait out the terrible event. But I hear a shaking. So what would your instinct be in that moment? To rest or run? Some experts would argue that a human's flight or fight response would take over. But remember, this is thousands of years ago, and I am guessing most people had no idea what was happening. Terrible death and destruction would have forced their way through the city of Pompeii. So what good came from it? 
It gave the future an almost pristine example of a thriving early Roman city. We can even honor the fallen with historical empathy by seeing the positions in which they died. Let's first talk about the history of the city of Pompeii. What does historical evidence suggest for the origin of the city of Pompeii? Most historians agree the city was founded by Oscan-speaking descendants of early Neolithic inhabitants of the area called Campania. During the 7th century BCE, the Oscans settled the area on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius near the area of the River Sarna. During that period, Pompeii became a trading center and caught the attention of the Greeks, Etruscans, and Semantite peoples. After falling under Greek influence during several periods in its history, the story of Roman dominance would come later. Pompeii was pitched against the Romans in the Second Semantite War and was ultimately conquered by a general named Lucilius Cornelius Sala around 89 BCE. Roman veterans, were Roman veterans were colonized there, and the general's nephew was made governor. During Roman influence, it became an important trading center once again, trading in olive oil and wine throughout the entire empire, dealing largely with the Middle Eastern city-states. Roman influence and architecture reigned supreme, building two forums, including the Triangle Forum, and more infrastructure projects like roads. However, the city's misfortune was not over. During the year 62 CE, a major earthquake hit and left great damage. Reconstruction was still underway on the terrible day in 79 CE when all life was wiped out from existence. It makes you wonder if the earlier earthquake was a volcano waking up, building towards its ultimate fate. Around the time of its destruction, Pompeii boasted a population of around 12,000 people, and it contained very Roman elements. So take yourself back 2,000 years and try to imagine what life would have been like for an average citizen. What does your day entail? Are you going to work? Are you going shopping at a market? Are you going to the gym? Or how about a visit to the waterfront? Modern technology has allowed us to gain a more intact version of life in Pompeii. It reportedly had a complex water system. Think for an example the aqueducts and baths of Rome. It had an amphitheater, a gymnasium, and even a port. Of course, not to mention 33 bakeries that have been discovered in the ruins. Okay, great. So you could go to the gym, drink fresh water, but how would you get there? Pompeii, like other Roman cities, had many roads. They were made of cobblestone and stepping stones that resemble modern-day crosswalks. So during a rainstorm, your feet would even stay dry. The main street, which was mentioned earlier ran from the highest part of the city at the Vesuvius Gate to the lowest part of the city at the Stabia Gate. And it again is called the Via Stabiana. The city itself was irregularly shaped because it was built on an ancient lava flow. Pompeii is unique in that it is possible to trace domestic architecture back four centuries. The earliest houses date from the first Semantite period in the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE. One of the now famous houses called the Vicolo Sortos, or House of the Baker, was a working bakery and residence for a family. Could this be where our fictional citizen and his family ventured on that faithful day to buy bread? What made Pompeii stand out from other cities in Rome? Good question. Historians have been able to study latrines and trash found in the ruins and determine Pompeian, Pompeians held a rich and diverse diet consisting of fish, sea urchins, shellfish, pork, and of course bread. They were also known for fish sauce production. Unfortunately, their downfall was being located at the base of a mountain called Vesuvius.
And now let's jump into our small business break. Bakeries and fish sauce producers in the city of Pompeii would have accounted for the small businesses of their time. Currently, data found in September of 2021 says small business accounts for 44% of the U.S. total economic activity. Consider this number. It makes sense to celebrate small business in all forms. So what should our topic be today? How about a topic related to starting a small business? Simply the name. While this might seem like a simple task, it can also remain a daunting one. The name of your business is what you want your customers to remember. After all, they have to be able to find it. So what are the elements of a good name? Most important, it should communicate what your business does. For example, Sammy Sandwiches. It's right there in the title. He sells sandwiches. Your name needs to allow for flexibility, growth, and diversification in the future. Make it too general, like our previous example, and you become stuck. It should be easy to understand. Overcomplicated names you find interesting could turn a potential customer off because they don't carry your same interests. Remember, you are targeting a dynamic group of customers. Even in a specialty market, you will have a competing personalities of a diverse customer base. Lastly, it should be memorable, something your potential customer will store in their internal memory and not have to look up every time they need a service from your company. Here are a few more tips. When contemplating a name, check to see if the web- website domain name is available and if the name is already trademarked. Starting a small business can be an exciting adventure. I hope this helps. Our featured business today is Freetaber Sales and Service in the small town of Oil City, Pennsylvania. This company specializes in retail sales, service, and installation of major appliances and HVAC equipment. They carry brands like GE, Maytag, Whirlpool, Weber, and Bryant. They have been in business for over 50 years. Visit them online at www.freetaber.com where you will find the home of the guys with the goodbyes. He awoke the morning of August 24th, 79 CE, according to most historical sources, and began his day like any other. He was the commander of the Roman fleet in the Bay of Naples. He was on land in the town of Mycenaeum when the ground began to shake. He looked to the sky above a mountain and noticed a strange cloud, from from which mountain he could not ascertain. Being from a scientific background, he ordered a boat to be prepared to take a closer look at the occurrence. His name was Pliny the Elder, and his story is being retold by his nephew, Pliny the Younger. Upon learning of the scope of the suffering from a message from Retina, the wife of a man named Tascus, whose home was at the base of the mountain, she said she was terrified that he could not escape. So the mission luckily went from one of scientific discovery to rescue. He ordered large galleys to sail into the danger zone where everyone else was trying to flee. Unfortunately, he would die of asphyxiation on a beach trying to escape the ash and pumice falling from the sky with nothing but a pillow tied to his head. When the light returned after the darkness, he was said to look more dead than alive. So put yourself in his shoes. He went on a rescue mission, made it to the house of his friend where they decided to take refuge inside and rest. Then the conditions worsened, and the sky grew dark. Flames were shooting from the mountain, and hot ash began to fall. What would be your choice in the time of no cars or mass communication? You may think the gods themselves are angry with you, and cry for death just to relieve the fear of death. His group decided to run. They found what protection they could and tried to escape, but unfortunately, it did not work. Nature spread its tentacles toward the living and grasped the life from their bodies. But where did this first-hand account of the disaster come from for us to read? His nephew, a couple of years after the disaster, wrote about his uncle's death and even his own experience in two letters to the Roman historian Tacitus. 
Lucky for us, they have been translated to English by academics, and most of the information can be deemed accurate. In the second letter, Pliny the Younger talks about his own experience on that fateful day. The ground shook beneath his feet, but this being a standard occurrence in Campania, Pliny the Younger thought nothing of it. Staying behind the be at the behest of his mother and uncle, he went about his day as normal, studying, dining, and finally going to bed for a fitful sleep. As described in his second translated letter to Tacitus, night brought even more violent shaking, and he sat with his mother in the forecourt of the house facing the sea, wondering what the next day will bring. Morning brought on a start of horrors that are described throughout the letter. It is interesting to note the detail of the descriptions used throughout the letter. Some of the words or thoughts may have been added or lost in translation to English, but the story is still worth retelling. The story will be right from the first English translation and tells of the experiences of the areas outside the region of Pompeii. The buildings around were already tottering. We would have been in danger in our confined space if our house had fallen, which made us decide to leave town. We were followed by a panic-stricken crowd that chose to follow someone else's judgment rather than decide anything for themselves. We stopped once we were out of town, and then some extraordinary and alarming things happened. The carriages we had ordered began to lurch two and four. Although the ground was flat, and we could not keep them still even when we wedged their wheels with stones. Then we saw the sea sucked back, apparently by an earthquake, and many sea creatures were left sanded, stranded in the dry sand. From the other direction, over the land, a dreadful black cloud was torn by gushing flames and great tongues of fire, much like magnified lightning. The cloud sank soon afterward and covered the sea, hiding Capri and Capio Missium from sight. My mother begged me to leave her and escape as best I could but I took her hand and made her hurry along with me. Ash was already falling by now, but not very thickly. Then I turned around and saw a thick black cloud advancing over the land, behind us like a flood. Let us leave the road where we can still see, I said, or we will be knocked down and trampled by the crowd. We had hardly sat down to rest when the darkness spread over us, but it was not the darkness of a moonless or cloudy night, but it was just as if the lamps had been put out in a completely closed room. We could hear women shrieking, children crying and men shouting. Some were calling for their parents, their children, their wives, and trying to recognize them by their voices. Some people were so frightened of dying that they prayed for death. Many begged for the help of the gods, but even more imagined that there were no gods left and that the last eternal night had fallen on the world. There were also those who added to our real perils by inventing fictitious dangers. Some claimed that part of Messinium had collapsed or that another part was on fire. It was untrue but they could always find someone to believe them. A glimmer of light returned, but we took this to be a warning sign of an approaching fire rather than daylight. But the fire stayed some distance away. The darkness came back and ash began to fall again, this time in heavier showers. We had to get up from time to time to shake it off, or we would have been crushed and buried underneath its weight. I could boast that I never expressed any fear at this time, but I was only kept going by the consolation that the whole world was perishing with me. After a while, the darkness paled, into smoke and cloud. The real daylight returned, but the sun shone as wanely as during an eclipse. We were amazed by what we saw. Everything had changed and was buried in an ash-like snow. We went back to Mycenaeum and spent an anxious night switching between hope and fear. Fear was uppermost because the earth tremors were continuing and the hysterics still kept on making their alarming forecasts. The story of Pompeii does not rest solely on the destruction of the city alone. Nor is it the only city destroyed on that fateful day. Several others in the region were damaged from the eruption, and another was buried and preserved. 
It was the city of Herculaneum. Both sites have become UNESCO World Heritage Sites, which help to protect, preserve, and to continue the search for historical analysis. So the question arises in my mind, how are these perfectly preserved cities discovered? And what is the history of the archaeological work that has already been done? In the 16th century, a count named Musio Tutavilla commissioned a reclamation work in the Sarno River Valley with the hope of digging a canal. During the digging process, the architect known as Domenico Fontana found some buildings with decorated walls in the area of Colina della Savitia. He documented the find and continued the work on the canal. Herculaneum was discovered in early 1709, and excavation began on that site in 1738, where spectacular finds and discoveries were being made. This prompted, in 1748, work on Pompeii, under the rule of Charles the Bourbon. After years of work, in 1763, an inscription was found identifying the city as Pompeii. Years of treasure hunters and irresponsible digging practices came to an end under the directorship of Giuseppe Fiorelli. The most interesting technique that came out of his leadership was the organization of the site into regions. He also developed the technique of making casts of bodies by pouring cement into the hollows formed in the volcanic ash after the remains had disintegrated, allowing us to see the features and positions of the bodies that were buried alive by the ash. The story of Pompeii has been written and discovered through the work of men and women like Giuseppe Fiorelli. An example of a more modern archaeologist is Amido Maori, who discovered many items from 1924 to 1961, and was the author of many studies and interpretations that can be traced to our understanding of the archaeological story of Pompeii. The fictional family who entered the bakery in the year 79 CE came to rest in the place they fell. Casts could have been made of their body, Impressions showing them embracing as the end came to those that are small part of the world. The family I am describing is derived from my imagination, but could there have been one as I described it? The answer is I hope. I recently was lucky enough to travel and see an e exhibit of artifacts taken from the ruins of Pompeii. They showed the everyday item from cooking pots, decorations of the gods, to money found beside a fallen victim of the eruption. I was also taken aback by the plaster figures that were exact replicas of the molds taken from the impressions of the bodies left in the ash. The very real-world death, destruction, and sadness of that day came hauntingly back to life. Studying the past so far removed from an, an event can desensitize a person to the horror that they are reading or writing about. Seeing it up close in person makes it all the more important to honor history and by continuing to tell the story. I hope you enjoyed the premiere episode of Is History Watching? You may be asking, where does the title fit in with the podcast? Imagine if the people we are reading, discovering, and talking about knew what we were saying. Did we get the facts of the events correct? Did we capture the emotions and feelings of the people involved in those events? What would they say about the story we just told? So I am attempting to bring history back alive and tell the story like they are watching from the past. Hopefully in the end, it makes you think. Is history watching? Thanks again, and until next time, history comes alive with those who embrace, study, and interpret the past. Check out our companion history blog titled Hey There, It's History at www.heytheritshistory.com. Join us for our next episode titled Vanishing Legion, the story of the famed Ninth Legion of Rome.